when we reflect on the great salvation that God has accomplished for us in Christ, if we are true to the biblical story, we appreciate that we are thrust into the realm of history, that we are thrust into a story that has, uh, has a beginning, actually be begins before time begins, and is carried through to a, a consummation and a final, uh, final destiny. St. Paul, when he wrote his second letter to Timothy, is, he writes to him to encourage him to be faithful, to be uh, diligent in his ministry, and especially not to be fearful about opposition. In the first chapter of that letter, he reminds Timothy that, that he and, and uh, Timothy and, and all of us, really, have been saved and called according to God's great mercy, not of works that we have done, but of God's great mercy and grace we find this salvation. Of this grace, he says, he says, this grace was given to us in Christ uh, before the ages of time. A lot of translations just render it before time began. So before time ever began, God had a purpose. God had a plan, if you will. And his plan uh, settled on a people in love, a plan to bring them into fellowship with himself. This was given to us, Paul says to Timothy, before time began, but it has been made manifest to us. Uh, it's, it's been uh, caused to dawn upon our understanding in the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light in the gospel. So the gospel is about an, an eternal plan of God at the heart of which is the abolition of death, the destroying of death by God himself in the person of, his, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, his, his only son, who comes in and wins this victory for us. The writer to the Hebrews uses this same word for destroying or abolishing in relationship to death. Chapter 2, verse 14, where he speaks of the Savior, since the people he comes to save, since his brothers and sisters are flesh and blood, he shares this with them. He shares flesh and blood with us so that through death he might destroy same word, or abolish, the one who has the power of death, even the devil, and set free those who, because of death, the fear of death, were subject to bondage. All of this reminds us that uh, the resurrection is, and the story of salvation is about God at work in history. This is, um, this is viewed as problematic, not just in the pushback of the world, but certainly in, in um, recent times, there has been a, an attempt to reinterpret that because of the, um, the challenge, well, the challenge, first of all, of believing that someone rises from the dead, but um, beyond that, the, um, the, the 
the belief that we are caught up in a plan that God is in charge of rather than uh, ourselves. There is some pushback against that. One of the more uh, typical forms was to view the, the resurrection stories, the resurrection narratives, as a, a kind of myth, not in, not, in, uh, not in a dismissive sort of way, uh, but the idea is this. Jesus died, and his disciples were devastated because when you die, you're dead. You're dead as a doornail. That's the end of your story. But Jesus, you know, Jesus, Jesus was such a remarkable person. Jesus had such a close uh, in relationship to God and insight to God that he made this profound impact on the hearts and lives of his disciples. And even though, even though he died, he lived on in their hearts. The, the uh, impact of his life on their lives just could not, death couldn't destroy that. And though they were very, very sad, uh, they realized that they had a, a treasure that lives on. Jesus lived on in their hearts. And Jesus still lives on in the world today in the hearts of his followers. And because of this hope that lives on, because of the impact of Jesus that lives on in our hearts, uh, even though he is as dead and gone as the rest of us, because of, of the impact that he makes on our lives, we know that when we are dead and gone and dead as doornails, and that's the end of our story, that our lives will still be significant even though there's nothing of us that will survive the grave, the fact that we have been here and the fact that we have understood the wonderful teachings of Jesus means that, that the significance of our lives will endure as, as long as the ages run. And that's why you can, you can end up in a lot of churches and, uh, and people will sing like, uh, He lives, He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along the narrow way. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. And there are lots of, uh, you know, lots of folks under the broad umbrella of Christianity who sing that, and they sing it, and they sing it joyfully, and their, their conviction is he lives in my heart, and that's, you know, truth to tell, that's the only place he lives. I, w I would imagine that some could sing a glorious day in this, you know, out of my tomb because the, uh, the subjective individual side of salvation for some is all there is and all to hope for and in, in some instances apparently sufficient for them. So there is that challenge to history uh, from that standpoint and, and probably the more recent challenge is in what we would call uh, process theology uh, and among those who might be more evangelical, open theism. So it's not so much that God has a plan. Uh, he may have a plan in mind, but uh, he's kind of working on things. And he's still sort of working, or she, who, what, whoever. Uh, God is, uh, God, God, the, the future does not exist. And so that if something does not exist, it is unknowable on this view of things. So God is uh, being God and far wiser than us. God is working on the future, 
but he's figuring it out sort of the way we figure things out. And so there's, these, are, these are present challenges to faith, and that's why it's really important to be discerning in what we, uh, what we read and, and the, the, uh, the sources where we, we draw our information and our edification around the faith. This morning I want to finish our reflections on Isaiah by looking at part of um, something that's in Isaiah chapter 20, 25. Make sure it's up here. This is, um, this is part of what's known as the Isaiah apocalypse. And there's an apocalypse at the end of the Bible. We call it the book of Revelation. But uh, Revelation is uh, an English translation of the Greek word apocalypsis, which is an unveiling uh, pulling back the cover, if you will, so that we can see, we can see the, the great end of the plan of God. And in Isaiah chapter 24 through 27, there is a, pa- there are a passage that's often referred to as the Isaiah apocalypse because in a similar way, but obviously much shorter than the book of Revelation, the, uh, the great plan of God is brought into clear focus. And so I'd, I'd like to read uh, this text and then just make a few comments about the, the keys to Isaiah's understanding of where our future is going. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen. There are, there are two phrases in, in uh, the text that we've just read that are phrases recurring throughout the first portion of the prophecy of Isaiah from chapters 1 uh, really up to the end of chapter 39. Two phrases that anchor us in the history of salvation to this world. And in the passage that we've just read, The first phrase is, on this mountain, on this mountain, referring, of course, to Mount Zion. If you you look at the end of uh, chapter 24, right before the text that we read, uh, Isaiah says, the moon will be put to shame, the sun disgraced, because because the Lord of armies will reign as king on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and he will display his glory in the presence of the elders. Language, of course, is picked up in the book of Revelation and also in some of our Lord's discourses about the end of the age. But the Lord will reign in Mount Zion. So that uh, throughout the first section of Isaiah, over and over and over again, we're told, we're told about things that the Lord will do on Mount Zion. In this text, in our text today, on this mountain, he's going to prepare a, a banquet with all the stuff that our doctors tell us we really shouldn't eat. Uh, 
And, and he will, on this mountain, in conjunction with preparing this, this banquet, he will destroy the shroud, the burial covering that rests upon all peoples. On this mountain, referring to Mount Zion, Isaiah opens with, in chapter 2 with the vision of Mount Zion. At the end of the days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be uh, exalted. It will be raised up above the hills, and nations and peoples will stream to it. They will flow to it, which is, you know, uh, water, water flows downhill. Some, it used to be if, if you would go out into the oh, Rocky Mountains, they would, they would have these touristy traps where uh, gravity was supposedly de defied, and they would build houses on these uh, strange, skewed angles, and you would get in there, and, and, and it looked like you know water would flow uphill in some of them. But this is a vision of the, the power of the word of the Lord. Nations will stream to it, and peoples will say to one another, Come, let us go to the house of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways and walk in his paths. Nation will not rise up against nation, and people will not learn war anymore. That's at the beginning, and it's all about this mountain, Mount Zion. And the other phrase that, that we read in, in our text from chapter 25 is, On that day. On that day it will be said, Look, this is our God. We have waited for him. The phrase on that day or at that day recurs over and over again in the first part of Isaiah to remind us that God's, God's plan is moving forward to a day. God's plan is moving forward to a, a particular point in history, not necessarily a 24-hour day. But if it's a day, it's a... It's uh, something that happens in our time, in our world. And it concerns our future because on the day of the Lord, uh, God's plan will reach its fullness. God's plan for us and for the world will be accomplished. Uh, one of the things that you will discover if you read through uh, the Isaiah passages about on that day is that there are two things that seem to happen on that day. One is that the Lord judges the world. Isaiah chapter 24 that introduces the Isaiah apocalypse is all about judgment. Look, the Lord is stripping the earth bare and making it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And he goes through all kinds of uh, people and professions and jobs uh, about the devastation that the Lord will bring. On that day, the earth mourns and withers. The world wastes away and withers. The exalted people of the earth waste away. The earth is polluted by its inhabitants. They have transgressed teachings. Therefore, a curse has consumed the earth and its inhabitants have become guilty. On that day, the Lord will punish the army of the heights in the heights of the king. They will be gathered together like prisoners in a pit. So on that day, the Lord is going to judge the whole kitten caboodle. Nothing will escape God's judgment. But at the same time, you hear on that day, the Lord is going to save. The Lord is going to renew things. On that day, the, the Lord is going to prepare a banquet. And the Lord is going to uh, destroy the shroud of death. 
What's the significance of on that day and on that mountain? Well, the, the mountain, Mount Zion in the Old Testament, is, it represents that point where heaven and earth intersect, if you will. Mount Zion is the place where the Lord God of heaven uh, appears on earth, uh, becomes present on earth to accomplish his judgment and his salvation. So Mount Zion is, is a, a figure or a, a, a type, if you will. Uh, certainly in the, on, for the Old Testament saints, it was a very concrete reality. But Mount Zion was God's throne, and that was where the, the God of heaven uh, pitched his tent, pitched his throne, if you will, on earth, and from there accomplished his judgment and his salvation. It's the place, and it's not because God, God works in all kinds of ways. God, God is a God of providence. He's caring for the world. He's uh, ordering the affairs of nations and peoples. And in some ways, he might be doing that behind the scene by his hidden providence. But when the Lord works from Mount Zion, the Lord, the Lord comes down. The Lord is present. And this is the, this is the place where the Lord engages uh, the earth, where heaven and earth uh, come together to meet. And so if you were to ask, well, how does that happen? Uh, how, where and, and how is that fulfilled? The answer is not far away, that when God comes among us and on the mountain of Jerusalem uh, goes to the cross, sin is judged. Uh, the cross in, in, on the cross, our sins are atoned for, but on the cross, the sin of the world is condemned. The cross is, in, in some ways, God's statement to everyone that, uh, that we have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. There, there is no one who does not need to stand in the shadow of the cross. The cross is... As one theologian has said, the cross is God's no to all of us that uh, none of our efforts, none of our righteousness rise to God's standard. The cross says only this will save you. Only this will bring you hope. So the cross is a, the cross is a place of judgment, but we understand it also to be the place of salvation. So that all of the pictures of judgment and salvation taking place from Mount Zion find their fulfillment in, in Christ and his work on the cross and in his resurrection. So the question that, that we face today is where, um, where does heaven and earth intersect now? Where, where do you find the God of heaven present in the world now? And the answer the answer is in the church, so that all of the prophecies about Mount Zion and Jerusalem in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ and in the church that is united to Christ. So, for example, in the letter to the Hebrews, the writer says to them, he says, you've, you've not come to a, a mountain of fire and terror, but you've come to Mount Zion. Namely, you've come to the church of the firstborn. 
The church is the heir of the promises of Zion. And in, in the, the fellowship of the church, in the experience of the church, in the, in, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church, the church begins to taste some of the powers of that great day and looks forward to it in its fullness. Let me close by just um, drawing your attention to the strong connection between Isaiah 25, the great feast on this mountain, and the, the destroying of the shroud on this mountain, and the, the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the, the, uh, the long apocalypse at the end of the Bible, the final unveiling of what's to come. The book of Revelation ends with a marriage feast. Chapter 19, you get there, to, which is a celebration of God's victory over Babylon. And the, uh, the theme of chapter 19 is that the bride is ready. God, God is making plans for the, the marriage feast of the Lamb. The Lamb, of course, is the Son of God. Uh, so that God's making plan for a great marriage between the Lamb and the bride of the Lamb. Uh, toward the end of chapter 19, it's said, Blessed is the one who is invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And then you, in the next, uh, next chapter, the, you see the, uh, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven like a bride, like a bride adorned for uh, her wedding. To... And then the very last words of the book of Revelation are the spirit and the bride say come. So that blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And the book ends with an invitation. The book ends with an invitation. You're all invited. You're all invited. Because history, history is moving towards a banquet. And this banquet uh, expresses nothing less or represents nothing less than the union of God and God's people. So where is history going? Where is history going? History is moving towards the, uh, the consummation of God's eternal purpose, which is to draw us into the closest fellowship that we can possibly imagine with him. And we, have a, we have a foretaste of this now in the indwelling of, of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a foretaste of that every time we gather at the Lord's table where Christ uh, not only offers himself on our behalf, but offers himself to us that we may take his life into our life and be sustained by the power of his immortality. These are all given to us by way of anticipation. But God is preparing a great feast. The feast of the, the, the wedding of the lamb and his bride. And it's coming here. It's, our, our future is in the new creation. I think most, most folks think our future is, you know, in a hill over yonder or somewhere. But uh, the bride of Christ, the, uh, the bride, the church, is uh, a heavenly, heavenly community that is uh, coming into its fullness, comes down from heaven, and it meets the, the lamb uh, for the, the wedding banquet. And then, of course, the, the last phrase is, on that day. 
when that, when that happens, on that day, on the day that, that the Lord uh, brings this banquet about, and, and there is perhaps the most beautiful contrast between Isaiah uh, 25 and Revelation chapter 19 and through, through 21 is in the, uh, the appearance, the clothing. So the, the bride is adorned with fine linen. Her, her gown is just a knockout. It's beautiful. And that contrasts with what the Lord is going to get rid of at the great feast. At the great feast, he's going to get rid of burial cloths. He's going to get rid of, you know, no matter how well the undertaker dresses you up for your box, you know, it's, you're dead. And in the ancient world, they didn't dress you up. It wasn't, you know, who would do that? They just covered you. And instead, instead of our future ending with a burial shroud, it ends with a, a wedding gown. And that is... That is such a joyful thing to think about. If, if anything can shape your hope for the future, it's, well, the, the, burial shroud is, the burial shroud is part of the life in this broken world, but that's not how I'm going to be dressed forever. I'll be dressed in the, the righteousness of Christ, and I will, uh, my, my future is in a, an eternal uh, joyful union with him, whatever that may look like in the outworking of eternity. And on that day, we will say, this is our God, we have waited for him. It's all been worth the wait. It's all been worth the wait. That's part of the message of, of Easter. Christ is risen. People were waiting for that for a long time. We're still waiting. We wait for his, we wait for that day but we're reminded that it will, when it comes, we will all say, this has all been worth the wait. And let us rejoice. Let us rejoice. Because God has saved us. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is um, a lot of folks gathered here today, bereaved, touched by death. It's not enough to, to just say, well, today's Easter, be happy anyway. But it is, it is worth remembering that a day will come when we, we, to the extent that we can look back, we will say, we have waited for this, and it's well been worth the wait. It's all been worth the wait. We didn't realize how, how much it has been worth the wait. So in, in this day, uh, remember where history is going. And don't be deceived by people who tell you that there is no future. Lord, we thank you for the great victory of the Savior. We thank you for the vision that you gave to the prophets of a plan that was conceived before there was ever a heaven and an earth, of your purpose to draw people into loving fellowship with yourself. We thank you that we have heard the invitation and we thank you that we are privileged to share that invitation to the wedding feast with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.